My guest this week is a publicist who worked for some of the most famous comedians of the 20th and 21st century. He also is the author of The Show Won't Go On, The Most Shocking, Bizarre, and Historic Deaths of Performers on Stage. And he is on the advisory board of the National Comedy Center, as well as having his own archives in his apartment slash house. I have no idea where, how he, where he lives. Please welcome Jeff Abraham. How are you, Ian? Happy, uh, happy holidays. Happy Festivus. Happy Hanukkah. Happy the Christmas. Rest of us. Exactly. How do you all, how do you get started? Um, I was an amateur magician, like a lot of kids. You know, uh, was, you know, was entertained by somebody when I was about ten or twelve years old or so on magic, and I loved magic. But quick, um, very quickly. But before long, I realized I had no talent. And I, I, I shouldn't say that. I did amateur shows, you know, bar mitzvahs, and, you know, picked up $50 here and there. But magic really wasn't my foray as a performer. I uh, enjoyed stand-up, um, and um, I actually did stand-up twice in uh, 1980 while going to college, 80, 81. And then really at that time, I realized I had no talent to be on in front of the camera on stage at all. And I figured... Um, the most logical place for me was to be behind the scenes, to be an agent or manager. And I th- thought about a career in advertising. I said, well, I don't want to ag- advertise cigarettes or products I don't believe in. Maybe, you know, maybe I can become an, you know, entertainment publicist or something. So that's, that's how I got started. So my first job was in entertainment PR. And then, you know, when you, you know, started to represent comedians, I said, well, that would be great. I know that world a little bit, you know. And who was your first client? Uh, my first couple of clients were uh, a comedian, comedian Pam Stone, and the amazing Jonathan. Oh wow! I I know I know him and I know her. From... Yeah, so those were among my first, and then uh, right around that time, I represented Jeff Foxworthy before he had written his first redneck joke. Yeah, we promoted his very first book, and I have somewhere here in the archives his ten, his handwritten list of his ten um, redneck jokes we would use to promote. So that was very fun to be on the ground floor of that, and then it just grew and grew from there. Start. We had Jonas at that time, or was that? No, I was at a firm called Sharp and Associates, and you know, I would you know we handed you know clients that you you know. It's a great way. It's like swimming. You know, you throw you in the deep end. You either sink or swim. And you kind of get clients that you don't want to work on, you know, that kind of thing. And you learn. And then you try to go, hey, what if I try to bring my own person? So that's what I was doing. And then, um, and I've been at Jonas for over 25 years. So I think I brought, um, what happened was Jeff Foxworthy had left my firm to go to a bigger firm because they had represented Tim Allen and some other names. And that publicist left, and Jeff Foxworthy's manager said, well, the only guy you really should hire is Jeff Abraham. He's great. So that, that was my job interview. I, you know, I went in with a fancy tie and everything and said, and my, and I mean, that was my, my interview. I heard you're really good. And then eventually Jeff came to our firm, and I reconnected with him for a while. And and then we um, – I didn't represent it, um, but our firm represented um, – Jerry Seinfeld, and we okay. had him from the pilot of the Seinfeld Chronicles up until the last episode of the, the Seinfeld series. Uh, but along the way, we had people like um, David Allen Greer yeah. and 
uh, Dennis Wolford was one of my first clients. Uh, um, and then along the way, I picked up people like Richard Jenny, who I worked with off and on for years. And probably my really big break was I was very fortunate. What is your job description? Probably a um, lot of things. We're, we're kind of like the we're like the Wizard of Oz. You know, we're the guy behind the curtain. You know, you know. Uh, I always tell you know, publicity comes from the uh, the Latin public. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, our job is to put it in front of the public. You know, the the job of your agent manager is to get the work, and our job is to tell the public about this work. So very often when you're when you're seeing a client on a Tonight Show or you know profiled in the New York Times or on a Mark Maron podcast or on this podcast, which I've done many times with guests on your show, it's a publicist making those phone calls. And yes, when you have a George Carlin or a Jerry Seinfeld, it's easy to get press, but you want to man- manipulate it and maneuver it so it's to their best interest. You know, oh, somebody says, oh, we want to do a piece in the New York Times. Well. Let's, can we make that one piece, one page, or a three pager? Can we make that three pager a cover story? You know what I mean? Okay. Um, well, can we make that stint on the Tonight Show lead guest? So yeah. So even though you have a client who was very easy, it's still a lot of manipulation to do and things of that nature. You know, comedians joke about how they have to get up at twelve o'clock or get up at eight o'clock in the morning. I mean, and and go on like Dave in the Who hand. Uh, <laughs> Showing Cleveland. Yeah, the frickin' frack show. Yeah. But you know what? The frickin' frack shows, they sell tickets. You yeah. Know, even today, you know, people, you know, with Instagram and Twitter and, you know, and MySpace, right? Remember those days? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, people are still driving to work. Well, well, post-COVID, we were, you know, pre-COVID, we were right. driving to work and coming home. But people are listening to the morning zoo shows. They're very popular. You know, whatever city, you know. You know, you're listening to Elvis Duran, and whether you be in New York or Jonathan Brandmeier in New York or what have you. So those guys are important, and you know, and you don't want to be, and you don't want to be at the point where you're too big for them because you're gonna need these guys. You right. know, as, as you move from the comedy clubs to the theaters to the bigger venues, those guys are gonna be there. You know, mm. it's like the people you meet on the way up. You know, you should keep them friends because you're gonna want them along the way. You know. So yeah, it's very important to do those shows, and you know I always hear from would hear from radio shows. Oh, the last comic we had on, he was terrible. This and that. I said, well, my guys pay me to you know make sure their butt is up at eight in the morning doing interviews. So chances are they're going to be better than mo- most comedians. Mm-hmm. It's the ones who get to the comedy club Thursday night and they you get a schedule slipped under their door and says, oh, we'll pick you up at six forty-five. And they have no idea they're going to be doing this. But my guys are expecting, you know, expecting to do that press. Right. I guess some comedians are conversationally funny and some are just funny when they're on stage. Yeah, it, it is true. I mean, some of them are, you know, you know, in the old days, you know, we'd have a Milton Berle who was on stage and off and always hilarious. You know, you know, the modern day stand up is you know, a little different. But, yeah, there are some guys who are very quiet and conservative. You know, I mean, George Carlin, for example, was not a particularly gregarious guy off stage, but he was, you know, it's so enlightening. The interviews were always very entertaining, even though they may not be the, the funniest interview. You know what I mean? And some, you know, some comedians, you know, did not want to burn material at eight in the morning, you know? Right. You yeah. know, because they, totally. you know, they want people to see it at the show. And also, you know, when you're working, you know, 
If you're doing a phoner, it's hard to be as funny as if you're in the studio. That's why they don't like. That's why a lot of radio stations didn't like to do phoners because you don't get that same rapport, you know. Yeah. At least when you're playing to a, a disc jockey and his sidekick, at least you have an audience. I just had Dennis Blair on last week. Dennis, uh, I don't want to say I know Dennis well, but certainly, in fact, I saw Dennis years before I worked with Carlin when I went to see Rodney Dangerfield perform. But yep. he was dead, uh, Rodney's opening act for quite a long time. Uh, wrote the movie Easy Money. I don't know. I think with Rodney. I don't know. I think yeah. With Rodney. Or, yeah. Uh, I was going to say four, but I think it's with. Um, and George loved him. You know, he delivered the goods. You know, he was with George for many, many years. Yeah, hey, a, great, a really great act. He told me he still doesn't know who saw him or where and, and who mentioned him to George Carlin. Because he just got a phone call. Do you want to work with George Carlin? And he, he probably gave the same answer as you. Because <laughs> he went from Rodney to John Rivers to George Carlin. Oh, I didn't know he did, Joan. Uh, yeah, you know, being an opening act is, is not an easy task. You know, people are there to see the headliner. But your job is to do a great job, you know. You know, some people say, I don't want a guy funnier than me. Not so much being funnier. You don't want to get the crowd too much worked into a frenzy or be too filthy because that's not what you do. Right. Or the nice thing about a musical act like Dennis does, you know, uh, musical parodies, you don't have to worry about him doing premises. So, you don't give a guy a list of things. You know, don't talk about traffic. Don't talk about girlfriend. Don't talk about, you know, this and that. You know, with a, with a musical act like that, you don't have those uh, concerns. He said Joan would always have two opening acts. He would always have a, a musical comedian, and then with him it was Gary Shandling in between. Uh, one of the best shows I ever saw was at Caesar's Palace. It was Joan Rivers, Jim Stafford, and the Smothers Brothers. And you couldn't get in there, you know, what's that expression, you know, with a uh, toothpick. I mean, it was so packed. It was one of the great shows. David Brenner and Joan... Uh, work together and he said it was one of the first times there were two comedians on the bill he said before that was always a comedian opening for a singer or a singer opening for a comedian mm. and he said it was a very novel concept to have a comedian open for another comedian but it was really co-headlining and they would flip a coin who went on you know first yeah i think i saw david brenner do that with joan rivers and i thought joan rivers do that with the smothers brothers at westbury music fair Absolutely. We're publicists for Andrew Dice Clay. Yeah, Andrew was a It's so, so funny to work with people you literally grew up with, admired. You know, my kid brother and I remember uh, going to the premiere of seeing uh, The Adventures of Ford Fairlane. And somewhere here in the archives, I have the bumper sticker that says, everyone thinks, I, I'm, I'm butchering, but I think it's something like, everyone thinks he's a detective. But to us, he's just a dick. <laughs> Something to like that. I still, I mean, yeah, I mean, the movie was great. I remember, you know, he was on Saturday Night Live, and I didn't, I did not see him live at the time, but I certainly was his presence from, you know, the HBO Young, Young Comedian specials mm. and things at Night Live and what have you. And then it's the same thing. Um, I think someone called me and said, Would you like to work with the, you know, 
to work with Dice. And I said, how great. You know, it's, you know, we spent eight years together, and then we, you know, we're involved off and on, you know. And, um, you know, with certain clients you become close with, you know, and others, you know, it's just kind of business. But Andrew was great. Spent many a high holiday and um, Thanksgiving with him and uh, with he and his family. I watched his kids grow up. And, um, yeah, and wow. I mean, you talk about somebody who was literally – you know, rewrote what, you know, comedy history, what he did. Amazing oui. career. George Lopez? Yeah, George was great. You know, um, I, I got George just as he was getting ready. He had signed a deal with Sandra Bullock to do the George Lopez show. So I was there for, for I think, most of the run of the George Lopez show. And that was great to see, um, to see him rise so quickly in the ascent mm. as a stand-up with the success of the show. And he's continued to do it. A perverted actor, too, and um, uh, a great guy. Yeah, and uh, my, my, he, yeah. Cheech and George were very close, uh, especially on the golf course. Yeah. And you work with Bill Maher as well. Uh, yeah, we worked with Bill. Bill, we had Bill. I think we got Bill the second year of Plickly and Correct. I think he had just left quickly. Had just left comedy. So he did an amazing guy, and, um, and and doing it, you know, bigger and better today. And you wrote a book, "The Show Won't Go On: The Most Shocking, Bizarre, and Historic Deaths of Performers on Stage." And when you had to go around to do publicity, I'm sure that was easy for you. It, it was, you know, um, it, it makes it easy when you have a good product. You know, that I, I, that certainly helps. But I was able to certainly call a lot of. Uh, producers and writers that I knew and send them, you know, having pr promoted many books over the years. So I had a, a pretty good, for lack of a better term, or a good Rolodex. And uh, yeah, some people, you know, will say, you know, Jeff was really great. He gave us X amount of guests in the past. Let's put him on. But, you know, if they didn't, if it was a weird topic or, I mean, yes, you know, book on death is kind of weird. But if they didn't think it was something for their audience, you know, they would say, Jeff, we love you. But I think we're going to pass. But yeah, being your own publicist certainly did help. And what's funny is when we when I talked to you the first time, I didn't even realize that that was you were the person I heard on the uh, Gilbert and Frank podcast. Yeah, you know, it's, it's funny. I I was I've done the, you know I would talk to a, um, I had a client at a venue and she said to me, "Oh, you're not the same Jeff Abraham who wrote this." I said, "Yeah, I am." Because you know you you try to keep it separate and where appropriate. And the funniest compliment, my 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 brother um, is a big fan of comedy. He was talking to somebody at work one day. He said, "Hey, I was listening to the um, Gilbert Gottfried podcast, and this, this really funny uh, guy was on talking about his book." And he, go, and he goes, "Wait, wait, that's my brother." <laughs> so yeah, it was great. And the wonderful thing is, we did National Public Radio Weekend Edition, and I had you know. People who didn't, you know, walk around with a sign that I had a book on said, "Hey, I heard you on the NPR this weekend." So that was really nice, you know. Um, you know, being written up in Vanity Fair and uh, doing Gilbert certainly helped. You know, it was great. Yeah, and still people discover my book, which is wonderful. I ask you about a couple of these. One I saw before, way before, like about five years ago on YouTube, uh, Tommy Cooper. I think I'm probably one of the most asked about. And I hope my answer was always, I go, who? Mm, I never. Uh, and and I go, they go, Tommy Cooper. I go, I don't know the name. And they go, wait, you're kidding. And I go, no, I don't know. Who's that? And he 
Kennedy, and they start to tell me, I go, what are you talking about? I just read a book about guys that died on stage. Of course I knew about Tommy Cooper, and who's name-checked in the John Lennon song, you know, Give Peace a Chance, when they're rattling off names. But it was, um, he was, Tommy was kind of like uh, the, the British equivalent of somebody we had here in America, the, uh, the amazing Carl Ballantyne, a magician where all the tricks never worked. Mm. And Cooper was, you know, wonderful on British television variety shows for years. But um, he had not been in health, great health his later years to it drinking and uh, living the hard life and smoking and all that, you know. So so he had not been a picture of health. And when he went to do this live television show, in fact, they kind of made a game of makeshift dressing room off to the side of the stage rather than going up a flight of stairs didn't want anything too tacking on him. And he did this bit where he would put on a cloak and then produce items, but basically the gag was they were being pushed from a, from beneath the cloak and the items would get bigger and bigger, you know. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden it would be a, a potted plant, you know, a, you know, a, a five-foot pole. So the guys keep on putting uh, items, you know, beyond, uh, from beneath the cloak. So he puts on the cloak Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden he collapses, and the audience laughs because it's funny. Mm-hmm. And then the woman who's who had put on the cloak realizes Tommy doesn't do that, right. <laughs> and the director's trying to go, "All right, is this a new bit?" And about forty-two seconds go go before anyone realizes it, and then they kind of cut. And this is on live television. And Donnie Osmond's like in the wings. He goes, wait, they need to bring on the next act. And Donnie Osmond is like freaking out. You know, I, I hope it's not me. And then there was a dance team. They said, well, we can't go on. There's not enough room on stage. They had to put a curtain there because they couldn't move the body. And so they, another uh, act, uh, uh, comedy duo, went on right after him. And it wasn't until the end of the broadcast and the news that it was announced that Tommy Cooper had died on stage. And what makes it so famous is that because it was done on live television, it was recorded. It was was seen live by millions of people. And it's on YouTube to this day. And every now and then, the Tommy Cooper Society tries to petition um, YouTube to take it off. Um, But it was funny. I had done a lecture for the Magic Castle. And we, we gave a prelude. I said, this is not like a, a bootleg film, a snuff film or something. This was something seen on live television. So we did show it. But otherwise, it's not like, you know, sneaking a camera and saying, this is, you know what I mean? Right. It, it, yeah. So that's probably probably the, one of the most famous deaths of all time. You have a guy that you probably wouldn't have heard of in America. Exactly. You know, you know, wicked mental floss and people like that. Or the, you know, the Onion might have a list of people you know who died on stage. Those kind of wacky lists. You know what I mean? So he he would show up on that because he was well known in that kind of circle. But I mean, and then like I said, the Beatle fans would know the name Tommy Cooper. And yeah, certainly the Magic Fraternity. But really, the average person would not. Absolutely. And J.I. Rodell is another person. Who's yeah, probably famous uh, for dying than he was when he was alive? Yeah, and a lot of people claim to have seen it, but uh, it, it never aired. Back right. Dick Cavett. Uh, so the story is, Jim was a health expert. As Dick, as Dick Cavett said, the gods were very good to me. You <laughs> couldn't ask for a better guest. 
who had been profiled in the New York Times a few days before, and then because of the big, this big profile, the Cavett Show booked him as a guest. And he was on the show, and I'll, I'll do the fast forward, he, he dies during the course of the show, and tragically, and then people would, and Cavett's been talking about this since 1971, columns about it and so on and so forth and people would come up to have it would always say the look on your face when that guy died and he would always say were you in the audience right because that would be the only way right because it never aired they wound up airing a repeat of uh, i think a jack benny episode so and everyone always thought again because they had not aired they had no way to research it you know and they always thought that wrote um that when you kind of die, your body makes a, a noise. The death rattle. Yeah. The death rattle, exactly. And they, it sounds like a story. And they had the thought that Dick Cavett said, oh, Mr. Rodale, am I boring you? That never happened. Um, they also thought Mr. Rodale had died um, after saying, oh, I could live to 100. Boom, had died. That yeah. also didn't happen. We were, again, my, uh, a good friend of mine named Robert Bader, who works for Dick Cavett, has produced uh, the Muhammad Ali um, Dick Cavett documentary on HBO, um, works with Dick Cavett, and he said, if you sell this book, I will allow you to be the first person to watch this episode. I mean, I should say, I mean, outside of Dick, it's about one other person. So you can literally count on almost one finger the number of people who have seen this episode. So what happened was, Rodale had done his segment, he was very charming, and everything. He was a little kooky. That's why people kind of liked him. He had theories about um, he should eat certain foods and he shouldn't eat other foods. He was, he was he had even written some humor stuff and he was quite a character. Even uh, uh, Cavett says, you know, oh, I think we might have you back. <laughs> <laughs> and I said to my friend during the taping, I said, does he, ever, does he ever invite him back? He goes, you don't know how this ends, do you? <laughs> <laughs> So he does his segment, he's very good, and right after his segment, he says the line, he'll probably get a laugh, because it's always gets a laugh in every old movie and you know, TV show. So he stops himself, he says, is there a doctor? Might there be a doctor? Uh, can, someone, uh, can we get a doctor here? And then they realize, you know, they look at him, he, he needs help, you know, and they... Try to get the people scurry about. They try to get an oxygen tank, which wasn't working at the time. Mm. And this is all kind of going on on camera. Then you hear audio of what's going on, and then he's just taken away. And because Hamill was a journalist, he gave a very detailed report in the newspaper the next day. So that's why a lot of people feel like they've seen it, because it was so well reported that day. And then again, Kevin has been talking about it for, you know, ad, ad, I don't want to say ad nauseum because it's part of lore, you know? I mean, I, I know he, Seth Meyers, you know, a couple of years ago, yeah. he asked him about it. So, yeah, it's probably the most famous death that has not been seen. It's called the Mandela effect. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. And to watch it is very eerie. I mean, it's not dramatic in the sense that. You know, there's not blood coming out. It's not like seeing a guy shot on stage or where magicians have been shot on stage. But, you know, just to see a head go back and this and that, it's just, it's, 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 it's jarring. 
But yeah, and then again, to see all the wrong counters. So in the New York Times, he had said, you know, probably if I take care of myself, eat certain foods, I could probably live to 100. That's where that line comes from. He did not say that in the show. Exactly, right. And that was the whole thing. We had always said if we wanted to uh, go to Wikipedia, we could have, you know, written this book, you know, in 20 minutes. But we really wanted to go to newspaper accounts. And newspaper accounts, aren't always accurate because they have a, de- a deadline. They don't get all the facts, you know? And sometimes the AP story is different than the Reuters story. And some newspaper may not run the entire uh, article, you know, because of brevity. So then you find the full answer and go, oh, that's a fact that I've never seen picked up anywhere before, you know? Mm. And like I said, and so, and then try to interview people who were there. And when you're very fortunate, you get to watch the episode. Um, yeah, you know, most of the people did not report about Donny Osmond being backstage. I happened to uh, Google, and I was doing some research, you know, and it, it came across that, you know, those kind of things. Um, was, yeah. was there a lot of people who, like, maybe had a heart attack or a stroke? I know Jackie Wilson almost died on stage, but survived. Yeah, we had a, the criteria was you kind of had to die, you know, or have the heart attack on stage. So somebody like Jackie Wilson wouldn't count. So we did we did make an exception uh, on with a chapter called The Long Goodbye. Jackie Wilson and Curtis Mayfield, two performers who were stricken but died, you know, eight or nine years afterwards. Now, you know, people have asked us about Lee Morgan, the famous uh, jazz musician, and technically what happened was he was he was um, his common law wife shot him as he was walking towards the stage. Mm. And we always joke, another two feet, he would have been on stage right. and made the book. So, no, yeah, that was the criteria. It was Irene Lay Pippin. But she was, I guess it was on Broadway, I believe, uh, went home to California, you know, and died six months later. You know, Frank Sutton who was doing a rehearsal of a play, so he wasn't on stage, you know. Right. So, in fact, we're working on a sequel. It's... Um, I think it's called Hollywood Endings, which really talks about more movie and TV related people. Like we didn't include, we wanted to, we didn't want to include people whose occupations were death defying, because then it would be very easy to to do athletes and bullfighters and stuntmen, you know. So, well, let me. The backstory is how the book came about. Was I went to see an Elvis tribute show. And a gentleman who was part of the show, you don't know his name, but you know his voice. Ladies and gentlemen, Elvis has left the building. Thank you and good night. A man named Al Devorin. Mm. And Al was in the lobby mulling around after the show. And he had worked with Colonel Tom Parker, even before the Colonel was with Elvis, like in 1955. And someone said, Al, when are you going to write a book? You've done it all. He goes, yeah, yeah, I know. I'll get to it. And this is Saturday o'clock. Monday morning, I'm having breakfast, and I watch the local news. Al had been killed in a car accident <laughs> Sunday morning after leaving the hotel that, that next morning. Wow. I'm watching, oh, wait a minute, what? I was just with him in less than 36 hours. That can't be. I said, wow. It, it, it takes the wind out. And then I think about you know, other performers who had died, you know, you know, Hank Williams died, you know, after a show and going to a show. And I knew, you know, one of the Righteous Brothers had died, you know, uh, 
John Edwissell uh, died allegedly of drugs and with hookers and blow in his um in his hotel room while waiting for the Who to reunite at the Hard Rock in Vegas. Harry so, Chapin, you know, right, driving to a concert. Um, he was on the Long Island Expressway. But this is what I learned. Speaking of Harry Chapin, uh, and we'll get to this later, but his last performance. He had performed up in Jamestown, the home where the National Comedy Center was, mm-hmm. in an old vaudeville theater. Loved this theater, but it was running down. It needed to like replace a roof. And he said, "I want to come back here and do a free show for you for this venue." And then he wound up being killed in a car accident, and went and uh, never doing the show. Right. And I guess his family put on a memorial concert for the theater. But yeah, <laughs> I didn't know that. Mm. So so I knew about people like that, and I did know about. Tommy Cooper and a couple of other people. So I came up with this great title. I don't want to brag, but it was a great title. The show mm-hmm. won't go on. And for 12 years, that's all I wrote. And people would say, what are you doing? I'm working on a book. Oh, the show won't go on. I go, all right, whatever. And my great writing partner, who I, Bert Kearns, mm-hmm. um, said, shut up. Let's do this book. I go, Really? Yeah, I had worked with Bert before. He was an investigative journalist. He came from the from Current Affair, and we had a great. I had promoted his book many years ago. We had a great love of Jerry Lewis, and we loved pop culture. And it was really Bert, because I wanted to include people who had died going to a show, like Elvis had died. You know, as his bags were packed, he was ready to go right, on the tour. Did, yeah, and Jim Croce and and. So it would not be all died on stage, because I didn't think there were that many, but people comings and goings and so on. And Bert goes, I think there may be enough there. And we, we got so many. I mean, it was overwhelming on how many performers died on stage. And your website updates. Yeah, I mean, constantly we would, we would go down a rabbit hole and find this person reading about this and that. And... The original title was, you know, the show won't go on the 99 most fascinating. And the publisher thought, pun coming up, overkill. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we, we we shaved it down. So there's about 65 entries, a couple mentions in a, of other entries within the uh, chapters, plus an appendix. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, so it, it was really Bird who kind of came, who really forced the idea on, not forced, I should say, really finalized the idea that it could really be death on stage. And then we came up with this criteria of not having people who were daredevils and things of that nature. Um, and it was, um, and then back and forth, you know, we, um, I've always said, you know, you talk about, you know, people finding someone's Twitter feed in bad taste. You know, if they ever found the emails back and forth between Bert and mm-hmm. I, you know, when Meatloaf collapsed on stage, you know, I would send Bert uh, an email. Hey, do you think he'll make Chapter Seven? You know, and um, I think um, Ariel uh, from uh, Aerosmith. Uh, I think Steven Tyler. I think he collapsed on stage. And Phil Collins. And so there were, you know, there were always people. In fact, there was a British comedian named Ian Incognito who collapsed on stage literally as the book was going to press. We just made him an entry. Mm. Yeah. So the only person who has a dangerous career, and this is probably another famous death, is Carl Walenda of the mm. famous Walenda family. We know really now know the name more so because of his grandson, 
Nick Walenda, who's crossed the, um, I think, Twin uh, Manhattan. I think, uh, I don't know if it was the Twin Towers. No, not Twin Towers. Some buildings in New York he did recently, uh, Grand Canyon, Chicago, maybe the Sears Tower in Chicago. Amazing stuff that he's been doing, carrying on the, the great uh, Walenda family. And the reason they were included, one was, because it's one of the most famous deaths, the pictures are uncanny. Um, but he was not, we don't, we, circus performers are performers. Right. And, you know, they're more about the show. They're not daredevils and stuntmen. It's really a show. Just like um, um, Owen Hart, a wrestler is not really an athlete. It was a show. Right. So, so, and so I had to clear the photos of Carl Walenda. And while doing a Googling search, I found the photographer, you know, I figured, what do you want for the photo for the photos? And it kind of did like dawn on me. Not only do I, is this guy, the guy who owns the photos, he took the photos. You right. know what I mean? It, it kind of like, it didn't, like, oh, wait a minute. You should be, we should be interviewing you. You were an eyewitness. And there's a wonderful detailed account of him capturing this moment. Um, and talk about the show won't go on. The reason they're the last entry in the book is so he takes pictures of Carl Willenda falling to his death. He brings him to the editor of the newspaper, and the editor goes, what are you doing here? Why aren't you at the circus? He goes, what are you talking about? The Willendas are going on. The what? Willendas, I think, niece and uh, daughter and some members of his family were going to perform that day. Because in the show business tradition, the show must go on. Yeah. And the Linda family performed. In fact, it's amazing um, how the Willendas kept on performing. They would do this called the pyramid. They would have seven members of the family stacked up and go walk across the tightrope. And at one time, two members of the family died and one was paralyzed. And the following year, there was another tragedy. In fact, when we interviewed Nick, our first question to him was, at what point do you say, hey, we're no longer in the high wire business, we're getting out of this business. Mm -hmm. But no, I mean, Carl was following the, in the footsteps of, of his family. And this is something that's been going on for several hundred years and goes on to this day. And, you know, and Nick explained a lot about using an airbag. He goes, you know, in the old days, people would, would, would root for disaster, you know, root for the, uh, you know, the stock car racing and things of that nature. But he says, we found when we have an airbag or a net, um, we get the same reaction whether we have one or not. And he said, it would be foolish to put other members of my family in jeopardy. If it's doing it himself, that's another thing. And some people, and he will say that when you're tethered to the line, which has to be done for insurance reasons, um, people like Red Fox and John Ritter, Tyrone Power um, Sr., who was working on a movie, The Knife was killed in a, in a mad incident. So, yeah. John Eric Hexum. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, you know, where Bruce Lee was not shooting a movie at the time and things of that nature. So sometimes we do lean into things because we know this and explain it. But right, John, absolutely, John Hexum. Right. And this is interesting. <laughs> um, I just found this on eBay just before our call. Uh, Mike Todd, the producer who was married to Elizabeth Taylor at the time, he was flying, he'd done Around the World in 80 Days, and he was being, he was flying to New York on a private plane 
and he was going to be honored by the New York Friars Club at the Waldorf in New York. And he was his plane uh, encountered, um, I think, flying uh, problems with weather, and it went down, and he was crashed mm -hmm. and killed. And uh, he died on the twenty second, and he was supposed to, and the uh, Waldorf event was on the twenty third. And then I guess the uh, the trio from uh, American Pie are in there. From uh, what trio? I'm sorry. Buddy Holly. Uh, about that the other day. What is the story with Ricky Nelson? I've heard, I heard, I heard freebasing. I mean, there's so many urban legends. Right. So I, I was going to ask you because I didn't know. famous guy in the book is the father of Albert Brooks. Right. But um, well, it's funny. The, it's funny. Um, I always said to Bert, you know, we need to have a button because otherwise the book would be any heart attack. And he had a heart attack. You know what I mean? Right. It would be very repetitive. So that's why we try to have different occupations and things like that and make it interesting. So, and the one bad comment we got was someone thought we were being side and this was because of this story the first story in the book which I thought was the epitome when I said to Bert we need a button a woman named Jane Little who literally lived up to her, her name she was about 4 foot 11 played the double stand up bass she was battling health problems and she was with the Atlanta Symphony and she realized if she continued she could be in the Guinness Book of World Records for the longest uh, tenure with a symphony orchestra well she came back after battling health problems, performed, and during the encore, she died. Right. She had a heart attack and she died. What was the song she was playing? There's no business like show business. You couldn't, if you wrote that in a book, in a, in a movie, section in radio with Eddie Cantor named Park Your Carcass, like put your butt here, park your carcass. Mm -hmm. And he had not been in ill health. He had, he had been in ill health for about a decade, and he was starting to bounce back. And he was becoming a a favorite at the Friars Club's uh, testimonial dinners and roasts here in Southern California. And he was asked to perform for a testimonial dinner, and he 
to use a show business cliche, he killed. He killed. Yeah. He was hilarious. You you can hear Desi in that uh, loud laugh and pounding of the table. Unbelievable. It, it may be on YouTube. It was. It, it was on YouTube. It, okay, it was on our website, theshowwon'tgoon.com. But sometimes links get taken down. But you can find it. Um, and when he was done, Art Linkletter, the game show host, was a MC that night. And he said, "Isn't that amazing? What a brilliant! I just don't know why this man does not work more often." Mm. And then on cue, his head went face down and fell into the lap of Oprah next to him. And then utter pandemonium. And then they said, you know, can we get a doctor? <laughs> Maybe they did yell, is there a doctor in the house? And they're trying to uh, jumpstart the heart with nitroglycerin tablets. And apparently Milton Berle said to Tony Martin, Tony, get up and sing a song. You know, let's you know, settle the crowd. And Tony got up and sang, there's no tomorrow. Yeah, that goes, oh, Tony, another song, please. <laughs> I don't know. Is it true? I, you know, Milton Berle had a, did like to fabricate. I did talk to, there's another Einstein, an older brother named Cliff Einstein, who's an ad exec, and he said Milton did kind of like to embellish their part. Mm. Uh, Leonard Walton said he was doing a radio show once, and... Milton Berle was like one guest, and Art Linkletter was another guest. They they went up meeting each other, like in between the commercials, uh, you know, talking to each other. And he said, uh, "Milton, do you remember that night? I'll never forget it." Mm. Yeah, I mean, I mean to be a witness to that. And the other great show business story, again, you know, John Ford said, "When in doubt, you know, print the legend." You know, mm-hmm. there was a, uh, com- a comedian television. Uh, actor we would all know, Joe E. Ross. Yeah. Car 54. Ooh, ooh, ooh. That guy. Exactly. Uh, Rit, uh, I think he was Ritzik, you know? Yeah. And, uh, he was great. Uh, wonderful character actor. Uh, you know, Matt uh, uh, Hyken, who created Bilko and Car 54. Not a bad, not a bad little run there. Mm. Um, we like to have these realistic kind of people. He did look like a, you know, a cop, you know, that kind of earthy yeah. person. Yeah. So, but he was, he was a slob. I mean, he was, you know, was just a schlep of a guy. So anyway, he was performing towards the end of his life. Well, not towards the end. It wasn't the end of his life. Yeah. You know, not in greatest health. He was performing at a, like a rundown kind of retirement home. And he was supposed to get a hundred dollars and he died in the middle of the show. So his widow goes to collect the money and the manager gives the widow $50. And she goes, 50? No, no, you're supposed to get $100. He goes, well, he didn't finish the show. <laughs> yeah. And the problem, it's a great story, but I've heard from so many people, go, oh, I was there, I was there, I was the guy, I went to go to collect the money. No, he, I was, the widow told me. So I don't know. It's, it's just too good not to put in the book. About, about Ms. Little, I always, if you're going to be in the Guinness book, the one, the one you don't want to give up is longest living. <laughs> um, what did Woody Allen say about death? There's nothing wrong with death. I just don't want to be there when it happens or something to that effect. Something like that. Um, I don't want to be immortal through my work. I want to be immortal through not dying. Right. Exactly. Um, so, yeah. Um, again, 
wanted to pay you, you know, be respectful because you're going to be, you're interviewing a, uh, a spouse or a child. Right, you're not going to be rude to Adam Sean about his father. No, um, you're not. I mean, because we didn't want to do a bait and switch, you know what I mean? Right. And in fact, you know, just in the, and I don't want to give the Adam story. We were very fortunate. Adam was so wonderful and gave us some great insight. And he had told the story a couple of times, but we really wanted to hammer, you know, a couple of details. And even though somebody tells a story, sometimes it's missing something, you know? Mm. Um, but one legend about Dick Sean, which we were able to clear up, everyone said, oh, Dick Sean was crazy. He was banned from The Tonight Show. And he flipped over the desk when he was hosting. They said, you know, we researched it. No. Mm. What happened was Rich Little was hosting. Yes. And... Dick Sean, they wound up flipping over Johnny's desk, and they pretended they were rowing across the uh, Delaware River like George Washington. And certainly, Johnny was not happy. Mm. Um, and Dick was, you know, was banned from the show for a little bit. Then he was on with guest hosts right. afterwards. And then Johnny said, "You know, this guy's too good. You know, he realized how good he was with the guest host. I'm going to have him on with me." So. Did, yeah. did, there's a November of '86 appearance on YouTube. Yeah, I think that. Yeah, they, I think that's the weird one. He actually does something about dying a little bit. It's, yeah, he was an amazing performer. I got to see it in a show at the uh, here in Beverly Hills at something called the Cannon Theater. And you know, what is ironic, and I don't know if this is in your book, he played John Ritter's father on Three's Company. Yeah. Yeah, I read I read his his biography, not his autobiography, obviously, but his biography. He was still snorting coke in, at that age. Yeah, you know, it's amazing that people lived as long as they did. Absolutely, you know, and that yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, there are books on people you know died tragically too young. I mean, they were not on stage, but right. you know, the Chris Farleys and the John Belushi's and Thirty Three Club, and then you have the twenty seven. The twenty seven for musicians, yeah. You don't want to know what it is because then there won't be any fun to watch.
show, not his lips. You are going to be such entertained by these figures. We don't say dummies because it's not politically correct. Um, as they are so lifelike, and he brings them. You never saw him. They would put it in the in the in the case and then take out another one. You know, he would never do that. Just Charlie, or all of his figures. No, all the figures, but yeah. But usually too with Charlie, you never when he was done with Charlie he and then bring out Mortimer, you never saw him go into a suitcase. In fact, here's a story which is one of the ones which would have been in the original version of the book. It's one of my favorite stories. It is that Edgar Bergen was coming up in age and um, again like people in their seventies not in the best of health. And he announced his retirement. And he was gonna do a ten day engagement with Andy Williams at Caesar's Palace. Um, he was three days into the performance and he would do a curtain call every night. He says, every act must have a beginning and an end and now it's time to pack up my little friends and I thank you all for being a wonderful audience with me all these many years. Thank you. Good night. Standing ovation. And on the third night, he went, he went to bed and never woke up. Mm. And talk about a beautiful ending. He announced his retirement. The last thing he had heard was the, you know, the ringing of his in his ear of laughter and applause. You know what I mean? Mm. It was just, it was just so beautiful. In fact, now some, you know, it used to going back to Tommy Cooper. So many magicians said, you know, if I want to go out, I want to go out like Tommy Cooper. I want to go out with guns blazing. You know, with people laughing at me. In fact really coming full circle. There was a documentary done um, last year um, on The Amazing Jonathan. And The mm. Amazing Jonathan had health problems. He had a bad heart. And the doctor said, you really should stop performing. So he had stopped performing. He said, I don't know how much longer you're going to have to live, but it wasn't good. So six months went by, eight months went by, and a year went by, and he's, he's still around. He goes, this is ridiculous. I got I got it. He said, I'm going to go back to performing. They have the itch, performers. Right, yeah, yeah. And he just didn't want to sit around. And then he went up performing. He did like seven or ten shows. And then his health started to bother him. And he realized, I, I really shouldn't, uh, I, I won't, I can't give it my all. And he stopped performing. And he says, in the documentary, I said, I could either die in bed or go out like Tommy Cooper. And I'd rather prefer to do it like that. So, but knock wood, he, Jonathan is still with us. Um, he was uh, attended the premiere. I got to reunite with him, which was so wonderful. And um, yeah, I, I'm really pissed though that I bought a T-shirt that said "The Amazing Jonathan: The Final Tour." Mm. That was five years ago. <laughs> and that's also how the book kind of you talk to people, you know, like um, Tom Petty. You know, when he died un so unfortunately and so um, suddenly, so so many people said, "Oh, I was just at his show five days ago when he died." Or Oh man, I was gonna go to his show and I uh, I couldn't get tickets and he just died. You know what I mean? So so it does those does really they they impact us, you know. He his last show or one of his last shows um, was in New York at uh, not that not Shea Stadium. It was the reopening of something called the Singer Bowl, where okay. the Singer Bowl, which is where a lot of famous concerts happened in the '60s. And I was going to go, but then I found my parents said, we surprised everybody. We bought tickets for the whole family to see, to, to go on the Disney cruise. Oh, 
And I oh. saw I saw Tom Petty since 1994. Every new album, every every two years. So I'm like, oh, I guess I'll see him when the next new album comes out. Right. And you realize uh, there is no more next one. Yeah. And I'm on the cruise, and they say he died. He had um he had just done the um yeah the Hollywood Bowl. I think was his last show, and you know did this. You know it, and this is you know with COVID. You know Paul McCartney, who's, who's amazing at 78, just came out with a new album. But his last performance, I think, was here in Dodger Stadium here in Los Angeles. You know, mm-hmm. he was supposed to perform at Glastonbury this year. And, you know, who knows what concerts are going to be like in the year 2021. You know, Paul may not perform live again. I have, tic- people- yeah, I have tickets for Ringo. I was supposed to go yeah. June 20, in June, June 20th, 2020. And they re- they changed it to June 21st, 2021. Yeah. Um, but who knows if performers are going to want to perform. Or the venues are open or what have you. So we may, you know, it, we, it may be a lot of people's last hurrahs. Mm. One more question about that. I want to get to the National Comedy Center. Do yeah. you have any ticket stubs from uh, these performances? Or would that be too. Uh, ticket stubs of last performances? <laughs> or would that be too like, ghoulish? Um, I mean, related to the book? Yeah, like, uh, like Tommy Cooper, you had to have a ticket to get into that show. Performance of Dick Jones. You could... No, I, I, you know, I have, I have not that show. I did come across the press release while Google it. We did find, I found a press release somebody had done for the show, and we dig that. No, I didn't. I don't have a lot of deaths related uh, to those shows, to those performers per mm. se. Um, it's funny going with George Carlin when he died. He had before he had shows booked. You know, you know. Mm-hmm. I, when I told Dennis Blair, I told him I saw him five times in concert, George Carlin. Not bad, you know. I yeah, I I uh, very I was very um, kind to my friends, and so many of my friends got to see George perform. But yeah, every now and then I would I would hear from people go, ah, oh, you know, I never got to see him perform. Yeah, he performed quite a bit. You know, he was he was always in your city, so it was not very hard to see. Oh yeah, Westbury Music Fair. That's where I would go. Okay, I want to ask you about uh, the National Comedy Center Advisory Board. The National Comedy Center is located in Jamestown, New York. And you, for you comedy buffs out there and TV trivia fans, Jamestown will, will ring tr- will ring true you as the hometown of Lucille Ball, which you will very often uh, reference in, in episodes of The Lucy Show. In fact, there's one time she's trying to get a passport, and they can't find her passport in Jamestown. And, she, and they go, oh, you were born in West Jamestown, not East Jamestown. She, it was even a plot uh, in one of the episodes. So what happened was Lucille Ball, uh, the folks of Jamestown wanted to build a museum. 
to Lucy. Mm-hmm. He goes, you know what? I don't need a, a statue. I don't need a, a, sta- a museum to me. It's egocentric. You know, I don't need that. Why don't you know if you're gonna build? Why don't you do you know do a museum for comedy for all comedy, not just me? And unfortunately, that project never happened, and they decided to build a uh, Lucille Ball Nazir Nas Museum in mm-hmm. Jamestown. And Lucy was all set to go. To talk about dying, she died before it opened. She died. She never made. Right. That's what I'm trying to say. Anyway, so and it was quite successful, and people pilgrimage mill made pilgrimage from around the world to go to this wonderful museum. And then at some point, Lucy Arnaz said, "You know, at soon you're going to run out of people who knew Lucy. You know, mm-hmm. it's like." You know, we should try to go back to my mom's dream. And then and then they got a new advisory board and they eventually said that's what we're gonna do. We're gonna we're gonna create something called the National uh, Comedy Center. And they were able to raise money. Uh, this is a fifteen million dollar, thirty thousand plus square foot complex, interactive with wonderful artifacts. Kelly Carlin the papers. I said, great, we'll make an announcement. And she said, and Kelly Carlin said, well, the only person who really should be making an announcement about this is Jeff Abraham. He knows my dad and he'll take care of you. So I made it and I worked on the press release and I got the press out and we got great coverage, including the New York Times and National Public Radio. And this was, I think it was in May, after the, the Lucille Ball Annual Festival, which takes place in August. Mm-hmm. And they said, you know, we could use, you know, maybe you could help us a little, uh, a little bit during the f- for the festival, promoting the festival. And I did, and we connected. And I was with, I was I attended the last four years, the last four years of the festival, and I just loved them. I just loved these people. I mean, it was amazing the passion they have. They pulled it off, you know. It's very easy for somebody to say, I'm going to do something, but they did it. I mean, you know, they arranged for the state to donate almost $10 million for the um, fundraising, and but they were able to raise the other $40 million. They, they opened this, this museum without debt. And it's an amazing. They took an old train station, which was a historical landmark, and kind of built around it this amazing uh, complex. And there's just so many great things. Uh, one thing that I am a little proud of, since I love memorabilia, is I said, "You want to see, you want to see this stuff," and they they didn't want to make their place the hard rock of comedy, you know. They, you know, we want to be interactive and you know, you know, touch and do and kids and I said, no, people want to see this stuff, and I kind of you know stamped and kicked my foot a bit and they listened to me and they they started to get many items donated and are on display so when you go there you have gary lewis's buddy love coat and you have lenny bruce's trench coat they would wear when he would be hauled away to the police and you would have seinfeld's puffy shirt rodney's coat and tie yeah i saw that in the website yeah and um harpo's coat that he wore and i love lucy was there um we had Andy Kaufman's Elvis cape, uh, Harold Ramis's Ghostbuster outfit, and on and on, and things of that nature. Uh, but there's also so much, like the interactive things are wondering. They, we have something called a comedy continuum. 
and it shows how everything is six degrees of separation. Oh, you're, are you a fan of Hall Reiner? Well, did you know Hall Reiner created, you know, work with Mel Brooks? He also created the Dick Van Dyke Show. He wound up working with Sid Caesar. He also worked with Steve Martin and Steve Martin. So you, you draw a parallel from all these different things. And then you see that, you know, John, um, uh, uh, John Oliver, you know, he, he's doing what John Stewart did, which is what doing what kind of what Johnny Carson did, who did what Bob Hope did, which what Will Rogers did, you right. know, they were all doing political humor. So yeah, it's called the comedy continuum. And then there's fun things with do. They have this thing where you take all these, these comedy, um, devices like anvils and you, show, you make sound effects and you, you know you watch uh, silent clips and you you uh, match the sound effects with it and uh, there's comedy karaoke and you can do who's on first then there's uh, great film clips and uh, that's awesome. even a hologram of um, right there's a hologram of Jim Gaffigan so yeah it's amazing and they're constantly adding and then every year they do their Comedy festival this year it was a virtual. One. Mm-hmm. They have a great comedy gift shop. So along the way, I because um, I was so active with making suggestions and doing things and this and that, um, they asked me to be on the advisory board. Um, you know, you know, along with people like Alan White Bell and Lewis Black and Kelly Carlin and Rain Pryor and David Steinberg. David Steinberg, the comedian. Who yes, who we just had. Up there, we did a wonderful uh, Q and A uh, last year. It was great at Chautauqua, which we do, uh, which is a great place of learning, along with the National Comedy Center. Uh, Carl Reiner was on the National Advisory Board. Mm-hmm. It's the you know it's funny. The last name of Abraham. It is always when things are done, they're always done alphabetically. So I'm always first at the, at, at the National Comedy Center. I am very proud. Not to be first. I said, there's no way my name is going to go before Carl Reiner. Oh, we had Alan Brady Toupet was on display. Oh. That's cool. Um, and then we did, we did a special uh, centennial exhibit on Ernie Kovacs. We had, we had great stuff. So, uh, yeah, it's wonderful. Um, yeah. I, I can't wait to go back. And next year will be a centennial of Rodney. He's born in 1920. Next, well, he would have, yeah, next year. Are you serious? 1921. Wow, I didn't realize that. Yeah, I mean, I was just trying to think of things that were going to be. Fi- yeah, yeah, yeah. Like this year, you know, yeah, you know, you know, this this year was the 50th anniversary of, of Python, or no, last year was 1969. So yeah, and then we did something for the Smothers Brothers, you know, and they donated their cello and ba- um, guitar. Wow. Bass and uh, guitar, and their and their outfits, and we and then also we're getting papers. We're getting many uh, uh, papers being donated from Johnny Carson. Uh, uh, Carl Reiner donated scripts, which being digitized. Yeah, so it's a it's a great place. As George Carlin said, if you like stuff, this mm-hmm. is the place to be. Yeah, I, I remember when he got the Mark Twain Prize. They showed his locker. Yeah, George. Yeah. He, Take all these uh, signs, door signs, and kept them absolutely, yeah. And notebooks, and oh yeah, and we're we're going through those now. It's no secret. Judd Apatow, uh, Apatow is producing and directing a uh, documentary.
documentary on George Carlin. Awesome. Having done the wonderful Gary Shaley documentary. So we're going to be going through many of Carlin's diaries and material and such as that. Because Alan Dwight Bell's wife, Robin, work, was, um, worked under um, Lord Michaels. You have a lot of her papers and Alan's papers. Yeah, I read his book. That's where they met. Ah, absolutely, yeah. Uh, and, oh, Donnie was a brilliant talent. Mm. Came out of Lampoon, if I remember correctly. You know, talk about comedy history. One of the writers on the show was a woman named Rosie Schuster. Yes. And but we should all know her name, that last name, because of Wayne, the great Canadian comedy team. Wayne Schuster. Absolutely, who was a big favorite of Ed Sullivan. Yes. But Carl Reiner, I believe, uh, had the distinction of being on with every host. Yes, because he was on the Jimmy Fallon. Right, so he's been on every incarnation, Absolutely. And you're working on a book about the Joachim brothers. Yes, I'm. Um, I'm actually uh, doing some new research uh, today. You think would, um, it would ever end, but it doesn't. Um, yeah, I've been uh, working on for way too long. Um, the death book certainly took a uh, detour for me. But I've been working on a book on the Rich brothers, which are for you uh, novices are out there may not know them. Um, they were a comedy team for more than 50 years, started in Bordeville in the uh, mid-1920s and uh, went all the way to cable television in 1978. So they did they did span about 54 uh, years. And what makes them important is a lot of forgotten teams, like you could say the Slate Brothers or the Weir Brothers or, you know, Peter Marshall was part of a team, Newton and Marshall, and you can... There's you know, some other obscure teams, but what makes it very exciting is that Harry Ritz, the youngest brother of the trio, is considered one of the most influential comedians of his time, influenced such people as Milton Berle, Jerry Lewis, Danny Kaye, Sid Caesar, Mel Brooks, among others, and some people have called him one of the funniest men of the 20th century. So, um, yeah, Mel, Bro Mel Brooks um, has written the uh, forward, and I, I, I was fortunate enough to interview every old Jew <laughs> who's around, and um, great stories, um, and the family has given me access to their papers, and, uh, and then through my own research, I found stuff they didn't even have in their archives, so I made it to the Ritz family archives, and yeah, we documented photos. It's amazing. Every now and then something new will turn up. I just was on um, Twitter the other day and someone posted a photo from 1927-28. said, oh, here's a photo of the Rich Brothers my, uh, given, to, given to my uh, aunt or my great aunt as she worked with them in Mordville. Hmm. Wow. I had seen the photo, but it was, this was an autograph photo. So that was, so was kind of neat. So there's, yeah, so I'm always, you know, looking for new photos, new facts, new figures. Yeah. That's cool, because I was just going to ask you if you were able to talk to Mel Brooks, and obviously, yes. Yeah, I mean, literally, um, it's funny, I got all the comedians, I didn't have luck, and they were around getting interviews with um, a couple of their co-stars, John Amici, who was in The Three Musketeers, but then a couple of other movies, and Alice Faye, I really didn't get anything much out of the, either one of them, unfortunately, they just just kind of too busy, and which is a shame, I did talk to Tony Martin, um, who lived to 95, and he was in a number of movies, he was a close friend of theirs. Um, but like I said, I interviewed Sid Caesar, Mel Brooks, Jerry Lewis, 
Um, you know, got a quote from Neil Simon. Um, I spoke to Carl Reiner briefly. Um, on and on. And I, actually, was very lucky. One of their writers, who was a very dear friend of theirs, a very close friend who met them in 1930, um, I, he became almost my mentor, and I spent a lot of time. So I got a lot of great interviews from him. Yeah, so um, I met some directors. Uh, I talked to Patty Andrews of the Andrews Sisters, who did their first starring movie before Buck Privates called Argentine Nights with the Rich Brothers. Yeah, my grandfather, they were, you, you always say they were maniacs. They would re, they would ruin their hotel rooms. Is that true or is that? Um, no, they, they they're on stage, you would think they would. But um, the best description I heard from them was one of their writers said they perform with an acidic frenzy. They're very, a lot of tumult. Right. If you watch Martin Lewis, not on TV, not in their movies, but on their Colgate Comedy Hour when they're doing their banter, you know, back and forth, you know, not their sketches, and you see the craziness, just imagine the Rich Brothers, and that's what they're doing. In fact, very lucky <laughs> for all of us, I only had, only had a bad copy, but it was up on eBay. Somebody had a kinescope of their 1952 All-Star Review. I just watched it. And <clears throat> every now and then, when I think, why am I doing this for Cockney Book? I watch that episode i go oh that's why i'm doing this because mm. you really you watch it and you go this is what they did on stage i get it now i know i understand their their mushuganess you know right and you, you watch this and there's certain moments you watch they go this is jerry lewis's father and again not to, and jerry lewis is probably my favorite comedian and not to take anything away from him and jerry will say how could you not be influenced by this man you know he said i I said, I, I, I did Harry's moves, but I did it my own way. You know, it's just, none of these, like Danny Kaye is one of the greatest performers ever. It is nothing he couldn't do from a chick, uh, from cooking Chinese food to flying an airplane. Mm. Um, so this became, as I say, the, two, the students surpassed the teacher. And like I said, that's what makes it interesting. Like I said, yeah, you could talk about, you know, Clark and McCullough and people like that, but... You know, you don't become um, performers you know, for 50 years just by being adequate. And they were part of a, um, a generation of a group of performers who are also forgotten. Sophie Tucker, mm. Joey Lewis, you know, Harry Richmond, you know, performers who were the, the mainstay of nightclubs in New York, Chicago, Miami, and, La and early Las Vegas. From like the from the mid forties, right after World War Two, up until say the British invasion, those guys, those performers ruled the nightclubs, and it was the ones like Jack Benny and people like that, who and George Burns who had TV shows that have managed to, you know, create a greater legacy for themselves. As George, as Phil Silvers once said, you know, you spend your entire life in burlesque and on Broadway, you do one sitcom and say, hey, Sarge, you know, they forget. But that's what, you know, that's what Bill Coe did, you know? And we, and I, somebody was asking me, isn't it a shame that most people don't know who Milton Berle is? I said, yeah, it is a shame because he literally, you know, ruled television, you know, but, you know, variety shows really don't run. Black and white variety shows certainly are not going to run. They're kind of datum. They're kind of they're hokum. You know what I mean? But they're mm. funny. But 
it really would take a concentrated effort to someone to put it on. You know, look at TV land. You know, at one point they were running old, a lot of the old sitcoms. Now, luckily we have Antenna and MeTV, they're running Joey Bishop and things like that. But those shows are few and far between, you know what I mean? I'd like to see the Joey Bishop. I have one episode of the Joey Bishop talk show. Ah, who's the guest? Uh, Sid Caesar. And the toys are the musical guests. I've never heard of them from the six, 1969. Uh, I ha- I've seen one where Sammy's a guest on it. It's That's the one show I need to get a copy of because the Rich Brothers made their first appearance as a duo after their older brother Al passed away. And talked about almost died on stage. He had a heart attack. Um, didn't do the, They did not do the second show that night. And he died uh, the next day. Mm. So um, almost died on stage. Um, but yeah, the Joey Bishop talk show, yeah. Unless they're great gathered, unfortunately they're also sitting, I don't know about all, but many of them are sitting in a, you know, in a vault waiting for somebody to do something with them. Mm. Yeah, I would love to see the Carson guest hosts. Yeah, I know, I know. The antenna, or yeah, that runs the old Carson shows, they have not uh, really replaced them. They're running a very finite, also, if you notice, there are very few musical guests, if any. So. I, know, I know I understand that. And one thing that Shout Factory did, which is wonderful, they put out the Jerry Lewis shows. I should say the Shout Factory channel has streamed the, the Jerry Lewis special. One Tonight Show, that in that period when they had the guest hosts between, when Carson got, couldn't get out of wow. his contract, I have, the one, I have one guest hosted by Jerry Lewis. Yeah, okay, that's it, yeah. Yeah, and he did that, and I, that's a, amazing. He did that with you down. Yes, that was, on, that was the Tonight Show. Yeah. Yeah, in 62, somewhere between July and uh, October. Right, and um, you believe how long ago that is? 50, uh, wow. I looked, I looked, and I'm 43, and then I looked and I realized Ed Asner was 43 when he began to play Lou Grant. Performers dying young. I just finished promoting a book on um, Steve McQueen. He died in his early 50s or 50. Peter Sellers, the same way. Mm. It's funny, one of my favorite appearances of Jerry Lewis on The Letterman Show, I think in 84, promoting his book. He's like, and I said, I'm older than Jerry now. The way he was, I go, what? You know, it's funny when you talk about age, I ran into. Desi Arnaz Jr. went to the improv here in Los Angeles. And when he turned in his pro- profile, the way his hair was cut, he looked exactly like Desi Arnaz Sr. I said, I'm sorry, I have to tell you this. You look exactly like your father. And he said to me, I'm exactly the same age now as my father was on I Love Lucy. So, yeah, you know, that's the, the, the wonderful thing about TV. It does capture this time, you know. You know, we were locked in that time. But it is weird when you mention like Ed Asner or when you look at people like, you know, John Carradine or Walter Brennan, who always was always old. Were they ever young? Right, right. Or uh, the, what was that? Wilford Brimley, who just died. Right. Jeff, it's great. it was great having you here. Um, look forward to reading about the Ritz Brothers. 
this summer, I think. I think that is the plan. Finally, I, I look at my stuff, and it's, like, amazing. It's like, this should not be living on my computer. It's it's, a, it's loaded with so many great stories of um, Al Capone, Buzzy, Bugsy Siegel makes appearances, Sinatra, and on and on. You know, a 13-year-old Jerry Lewis you know, shows up in there. You know, Milton Berle telling me a story, again, which hopefully is true, about going to a whorehouse, but um, uh, he told me it's all going to Wait, 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 hold on. Was it that... I just wanted because I've heard this story about was it that Mel, Milton Burrell's mother was very protective and only would let him go out with uh, certain people so as to not corrupt him. Right. And this person took him to a warehouse. Right. Exactly. I heard that about Phil Silvers. Say what? I heard that same story with Milton Burrell and Phil Silvers. Exactly. But then you realize, right. But Phil uh, Silvers is five years younger than Milton Burrell. Right. Uh, what's the age difference? Uh, Phil Silvers and Milton Burrell, five years. Yeah, Phil Silver was born in nineteen thirteen, and born. Okay, then it's possible. Well, how could the how could like if Milton Berle was fifteen, how could the ten year old boy corrupt him and take him to work? Was he fifteen? Well, you know, you know, Harry was a year older, so it's logical. The real one. Oh wait, this says uh, Phil Silver was born in nineteen eleven. Oh, okay. And Milton was born in nineteen oh eight, three years. So maybe uh, Milton was eighteen, and. Um, Phil Silvers was 15. The real bad one was Al Lewis, who made up these stories about, um, you know, he said, oh, I work for Al Capone. He realized, you know, he was only like two years older than, uh, a few years older than Yvonne DiCarlo. He's like our father, you know? And so he had all the stories. Oh, I used to run numbers for Al Capone. He did the math. He goes, well, what be four? And the other one, you know, even Bur going back to Burl, I, I love him, and is a, a very good friend of mine, who's actually Milton's nephew, his, his brother, his father is Phil Burl, Milton's brother. He's one of the few people who can actually say Uncle Milty. And so, as much as I love Uncle Milty, you know, he tells a story that he was the kid in, in Chaplin's Tilly's Punctured Romance. Right. He's not. And I think what happened was the, the, kid, the kid who played that part, he died like in 55. I think in 56, Bill started telling the story. Was he, was he, he, so he wasn't the kid in the Buster Brown shoe commercials either? Or Ed's? You know, I doubt it. You know, he, he was everything in, between 1900 and 1912. Yeah, you know, you know, no one thought when these guys told stories, no one thought there would be something like ProQuest, you know, and dig up this. He goes... You know, I heard he shot William McKinley. <laughs> um, someone told me Stan Freeberg said, oh, I was supposed to do a voice, I think, in Dumbo or something, in some Disney movie, like, whatever it was. And people are yeah, we have no record of that, whatever. And then all of a sudden, they're doing a, uh, there's a DVD extra of this Disney film comes out. And one of the extras is the, the papers that was in Walt's office have been digitized. And then one of the memos is digitized, and you can read the list of, uh, like, voice actors. And Freeberg's name is on that list. So a lot of these times, a lot of these guys did not have to make up stories. They were pretty great. You know, like I said, Milton Burrow was in TV in 1948. You know, that alone, you get a free pass. And they gave him a lifetime contract, which was, you know, which was 50 years, and he survived it. It ran out 10 years ago. He used to do a joke with that. I think he was a 30-year contract. And they used to say, you know, 
back then, you know, 30 years, lifetime, the same thing. But then he took, but it was an exclusive contract. And then he, what he did was he took a reduction in it um, in order to be appear on other networks. So that he, he couldn't appear on Hollywood panels and other shows. But he was able to do... Um, um, Celebrity bowling. Exactly. With the Rich Brothers are on. Which, now, that's the great thing that made the project, project shows that I never thought would exist. Mm. You know, you hunt it down. Somebody's got one copy. You know, you figure, you know, next thing you know. I just watched it an hour ago there. before yeah. I talked to you. So, yeah. So, the other thing is, and this will tie it in if your audience wants to laugh, is we are living in the greatest generation. The amount of free material that's on YouTube, mm. on archive.org, I mean, the from the interviews that the Television Academy, and I was lucky enough to do about seven or eight of them in interviewing these legends, and they interviewed Milton Berle, you know, on up, you know, up through, you know, uh, Mark Burnett from uh, Survivor, you know? It's a great history of television that the Television Academy has done. I, I did William, uh, Jonathan Harris and uh, Alan Young, and a number of notable people, and Bill Dana. It's, I mean, the history of television is, so, we are so fortunate. And it does, it's a shame that someone doesn't know who a person is, but, you know, again, not all humor holds up. You know what I mean? Right. There's no excuse for someone not wanting. Like I said, I'm really, I don't get upset if someone says, I, like, a young comic says, who's Jack Benny? You know what? A young comic really doesn't need to know Jack Benny. You know, certainly, yeah, and that, and that style is much more. So, anyway, so my, I'm leaving you with this note. It is always best to laugh, and there's no other better place to laugh in the World Wide Web, my friend. Okay. Alrighty, uh, Ian, this was truly a pleasure, and we will talk soon. Okay.